We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Woolerskin booking the guest. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. All the Toronto Maple Leafs need to do to advance to the Stanley Cup playoffs is to win the next four games in a row. Set up the TV trays and place your bets. Here's Scott oh, Thompson. Come on. Sadly, uh, he's accurate. Uh, good afternoon. It is Hamilton today. Thanks for coming along. Great to have you here. Feel free to jump into the fun. It was on this uh, day week, 2016. Following his unexpected death, Prince had the top two spots on the Billboard album chart with the very best of Prince and Purple Rain at number two. Uh, with music unavailable on most streaming service, uh, Prince's that is, and downloading distributors, uh, physical albums were in many cases the best way to get his music at the time. But this date back in 2016, Prince back to the top of the charts uh, simply because of his un- untimely, untimely passing. All right. Uh, as I mentioned, join into the show. Love to have you. Lots going on. Uh, but then really not much is going on when you stop to uh, stop to ponder it. We're all... Um, Wallowing the after wallowing in the afterglow of a Liberal Party convention and um, and the coronation of uh, King Charles. There you go. What more? Do you, what more do you need on a weekend? Come on. Oh yeah, and the Leafs lose. Don't even get me started. Uh, I'm out. And you know what? They'll probably come back and win one one more just to tease us all. But then, um, uh, yeah. Uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. All right. The safety minister, uh, Marco Mendicino is, um, is talking about a guns and gangs, uh, uh, monetary, uh, grant he's giving everybody. <laughs> I shouldn't say it's a monetary grant. He's giving money to guns and gangs, but constantly being asked about, uh, Michael Chong, the MP, uh, what happened in the meeting, uh, with the diplomat that was supposedly summoned, uh, last week. Why is the diplomat? Uh, still uh, here, and uh, all sorts of uh, issues in regard to that, uh, and and it just does not seem to be dodging the uh, or, or uh, sorry uh, leaving the prime minister. Uh, what else we got? Oh, the uh, um, all of this continuing in around obviously the prime minister saying something different than his national security advisor and ceases saying that he did not get the information; it was not passed up the chain. Uh, that being said, they say, meaning the National Secure, uh, Security Advisor, Jody Thomas, and C says, well, yes, it was. So uh, I guess it's a case of who do you believe there and I get, and just keep moving along until um, um, nobody notices anymore. Um, the the uh, Prime Minister obviously taking off for the coronation uh, of King Charles, which, of course, is obvious. Does anybody know where he's staying, though, or where he did stay? Did he stay at the Thames? Uh, the room along the Thames, the $6,000 a night room. Did he go back to the same place that he was at for the funeral for the coronation? Or was it just the Motel 6? Was it just yeah, Holiday Inn Express? You know, free complimentary breakfast. You got to love that. Continental, but you know, what the heck? Hits the spot. And also a nano survey coming out. Uh, the majority of Canadians, 64%, want Canada to reach. It's at least minimum threshold for defense spending with NATO at 2%, despite what the prime minister says, uh, that we're not interested in doing that. But apparently, uh, you are interested in doing that and don't like being ridiculed by our allies for uh, being cheapskates and riding on the coattails of others. 
What else we got? Oh, yeah, the gravel thrower. He gets uh, 90 days of house arrest. Uh, Listen to this report from Amy Simon from Global News. 26-year-old Shane Marshall was sentenced this morning to 90 days of house arrest and one year of probation. Marshall, who pleaded guilty to common assault back in March, was also given 80 hours of community service, which will have to be completed within the next nine months. He's also been banned from being within 100 meters of Trudeau and from communicating with him. The defense argued that Marshall let his anger management issues get the best of him when he threw gravel at the prime minister during a September 2021 campaign stop in London. Trudeau wasn't hurt. However, the Crown said Marshall's actions were not just an assault on a political candidate, but an assault on democracy. Amy Simon, Global News. An assault on democracy. I wonder what the same judge would think about what's happening with Michael Chong, the MP, whose family is being uh, threatened by the Chinese Communist Party and has been for the last uh, couple of years that he's just found out about it. It's amazing that a gravel thrower, and I am not endorsing this, it was a stupid thing to do. We're all angry at various things. There's no reason for anyone to take it to this level. 90 days, house arrest, an assault on democracy. Yet the diplomat that has threatening uh, MP Chong's family and interfering in our elections uh, still is in Canada enjoying diplomatic immunity as per the prime minister's wishes. So there you go. Um, uh, the gravel thrower, it's a front page story. However, the person who is accused of harassing the diplomat that is accused of harassing uh, Michael Chong and his family uh, that the Prime Minister and CSIS and the National Security Advisor are addressing, um, still here. Nothing's happening. So, you know, it is what it is, uh, and hopefully we'll see cooler heads prevail over the course of time. All right, as I mentioned, coming up in about two hours from now, your chance to play Hammerhead Trivia. Uh, great prize on the line. Tell you about that coming up a, a little bit later. Also, uh, Russia, Ukraine still at it. And remember that, of course, Gordon Lightfoot passed away last week. We're going to touch base again with Aurelia. Uh, over the weekend, thousands of fans flocking there to pay their respect to Gordon Lightfoot. We'll get an update from Aurelia coming up a little later on this hour. Also, critical minerals that everybody wants that are so available in Canada. How do we make sure they get into the right hands? We'll talk about that. Also, the coronation coming up uh, and in what direction we are going in. And another stage forward in Ontario health reforms, allowing more private clinics to often offer certain uh, publicly funded surgeries and procedures in an effort to cut the long wait list. So uh, we'll tell you more about that coming up in a little uh, in a little a little later on in the show. Victory Day uh, celebrations, I guess, uh, Russian's most important secular holiday. It's been overshadowed by the ongoing war in Ukraine this year. In many regions, events were subdued or canceled. To talk more about all of this and where we are at this stage of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Matthew Light is with us, Associate Professor of Criminology, Sociological Studies, and affiliated with the Center for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies, University of Toronto, and with us now. Matthew, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, great to be with you. Hello. So, Matthew, talk about the significance of uh, of Victory Day in Russia and how it was different this year. So, um, Victory Day um, is ultimately a Soviet holiday, which um, is celebrated traditionally on May 9th rather than May 8th, uh, marking the victory over Nazi Germany. Um, In in Western Europe and North America, that was marked on May 8th and in the Soviet Union on May 9th. 
it turned into a, a highly politicized um, celebration of Russia's role in that victory um, in recent decades. And the celebrations have been extremely elaborate and um, overseen by the president and other top officials. Um, the interesting thing is that, of course, at, this, at that time in, in World War II, Russia was only one of, of uh, 15 Soviet republics. Um, the others also contributed significantly to the victory over Nazism, including Ukraine, where many of the most significant battles were fought, as well as plenty of other republics that also lost a very high portion of uh, their population to um, hostilities. Um, so it's quite uh, unusual for these events to be canceled, and different explanations have been offered as to why that's happening. Um, one is security concerns. Uh, another is um, lack of sufficient um, people or equipment to make the celebrations seem convincing. And a third is simply that the war in Ukraine is going very well, and perhaps uh, marking the victory may not seem uh, very persuasive at the moment. Are, uh, and we've talked about this ever since the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Obviously, they control state media and such. But are Russians asking questions more? Are, are they asking more questions now? I think it has become very hard for anybody to believe the official narrative that victory is imminent. Um, and in a way, it's been noted that the narrative has shifted to reflect that, that this is now being presented as a long slog um, that Russia is involved in a in a long historic struggle against the forces of evil um, symbolized by NATO and the West. So I think uh, people are sort of primed to understand that the situation is not great. And in a way, um, canceling Victory Day is consistent with that. But nonetheless, there's no way to spin it as something positive. It's celebrated with a lot of festivities every year. And not celebrating it does not look good in some sense. Uh, we remember with a lot of these parades, there are a big military display, uh, row after row after row of personnel and equipment and such. Uh, do you think there's just not enough to go around and show this usual uh, parade that we, we would normally see? That, that has been suggested as one possible explanation, that um, either not enough or not the right kind, that the more impressive weapons are depleted or needed in, in Ukraine. Um, it's also been suggested that there may be concerns about security. So um, the the Ukrainians have gotten pretty good at um, blowing up military targets inside Russia, uh, such as uh, oil storage tanks. I don't actually think it's very likely that they would attack a parade like this. That would be a very, a very unwise thing for them to do, um, wouldn't achieve any of their objectives. But that has also been um, presented as one possible explanation for what's going on. What about the uh, situation last week with the drone over the Kremlin and the explosion? It, it kind of looked like something out of a Twilight Zone episode more than anything. H how is that playing there? Um, what are your thoughts? That's a very murky incident. Um, on the one hand, um, the Russians have been very quick to attribute blame to that for to Ukraine, and I, suggesting, I think, in a way that's really not very serious, that it was an attempt to kill Putin, um, although he is known not to spend much time in the Kremlin. Um, on the other hand, um, Zelensky has you know, said that, that this is not the kind of thing Ukraine would do. Indeed, it's really not clear what Ukraine would get out of that kind of demonstrative attack on the Kremlin. It's the kind of thing that Western governments, such as the U.S., have been urging Ukraine not to do, so it would simply potentially make trouble with them. Um, I do think that there is at least some evidence pointing to the suggestion that this is that is a false flag operation carried out by Russia to um, 
uh, whip up support for its war against Ukraine and present Ukraine as a terrorist state, um, especially given that Ukraine has been making similar arguments uh, in relation to Russia recently. However, I think nobody, at least I'm not in a position to say conclusively whether it was Ukraine or Russia that did this. Um, to say that it was somebody attacking Russia, does that not make them look vulnerable? Well, there is also that dimension, right? So um, it's 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 interesting that the Russian coverage of this is sort of hysterical on the one hand, insisting that Ukraine is behind it. On the other yeah. hand, and not really going into how exactly they could have done it, given uh, Russia's uh, allegedly wonderful air defenses. Uh, Victoria Day, uh, sorry, uh, Victory Day, a excuse for Russia to ramp up the assault on Ukraine. Well, um, one way that it's in a way sort of surprising that the celebrations were canceled is that Victory Day in Russia has been turned into kind of a um, a continuous narrative about Russian history that involves Russia alone single-handedly defeating Nazi Germany, uh, the West being ungrateful, um, Ukrainians being fascist collaborators. So in that sense, um, Victory Day is is used for to pr- promote the sort of argument about the justification of the war the Russian government wants. Um, not being able to have the celebrations doesn't mean that that message can't be spread, of course. Hmm. Matthew Light with us, Associate Professor of Criminology, Sociological Studies, uh, European, Russia, and Eurasian Studies, University of Toronto. Matthew, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. A pleasure. Bye. Over the weekend, you can imagine thousands of fans flocked to Aurelia to pay respects to uh, Gordon Lightfoot at his visitation. Ralph Sapola with us, Counselor for Ward 2, City of Aurelia, and here now. Ralph, thank you for the time. I, I, I can't imagine how you've been feeling and, and everyone in Aurelia this weekend. Well, everybody had tears in their eyes, uh, and, you know, it it wasn't a happy weekend, but it was happy to celebrate his uh, life in Aurelia over the, over the, over the uh, years. Um, there was over 3,000 people that, that attended in the rain and with umbrellas and everything else, so mm. it was quite a tribute to him. So walk us through what the what it was like this weekend. Well, uh, Saturday, Saturday night, there was... Um, uh, we had a full house of 700 people. It only sits 700 people at the opera house for, uh, uh, for a tribute to him. Uh, there was, uh, uh, sort of like a concert tribute to him mm. and it was really well done. And, uh, we had a lot of, uh, people on behalf of Aurelians. We lowered the flags to half, half mast. Um, uh, uh, you know, and, and Cord Lightfoot celebrated his city birthday at the opera house on November 17, 2019. So, the tribute to him on Saturday night was a dedication to him, and uh, as as I said to you before, uh, he donated a lot of his money to the Aurelia Soldiers Hospital and to the Opera House. But um, I was I was at the visiting hours, and uh, people were walking by. They were crying. I hadn't mm. seen people for there. I hadn't seen people that I knew for twenty years, and they were there, and uh, uh, quite a few of them were crying, had tears in their eyes. But the weather. It would have been a lot more people had the weather uh, participated uh, with us. And uh, said, uh, as we call ourselves the Sunshine City, it should have been hmm. sunshine on Saturday. But if you remember correctly, Mr. Lightfoot's uh, one of his songs had to do with rain. So maybe that's what he yeah. was telling us. Exactly. Um, any idea how many would have come from outside the area, uh, you know, outside well, the region? Well, there was quite a few people from Toronto, and uh, there was uh, two people that came up that I that I uh, um, knew or not didn't know that mentioned it to me. 
that were from the states, uh, the, the Buffalo, the Buffalo area, and that area there that came up to pay their respects. And and, and uh, like I said, they were emotionally uh, stressed uh, now when they walked by the uh, the casket. What was it like in the church? What was it like uh, at St. Paul's? Uh, it was very somber. Um, people like, you know, and then everybody signed signed the book and and uh, condolence book, and and a lot of people donated to his charity. Uh, they were lined up to uh, donate to his charity, and uh, it, it was it was sad, but but happy. And mm-hmm. It was happy for his life, for his thing, and. As I said to you, Gord Lightfoot put her really on the map, uh, not just in Canada or Ontario, but throughout the world, uh, wherever he went, he mentioned Aurelia. So um, that was much appreciated. And, you know, the Mariposa Folk Festival is alive today because of him, because he helped us uh, promote it and, and everything else. So, And we draw 30,000, 40,000 people uh, to, uh, to the festival. And there is a plan to put... Uh, uh, some kind of a coordinated effort to uh, contribute to his contribution to the festival this year, July 6th, 7th, and 8th. So uh, you were you, you talked a little bit about this last week, and, and obviously, you know, things are still fresh here, but is there any sort of uh, way you're going to change the way you do things in Aurelia moving forward in order to mark this day, in order to, to celebrate and, and, and honor his memory? I'm sure there will be a celebration. Uh, I'm going to have to talk to council, the rest of the mayor and council. Uh, mayor McIsaac uh, was in uh, uh, was away, and he asked me to uh, represent the city. So, but I'm going to have to talk to the mayor and council to mm-hmm. see what how we can honor him on a yearly basis. Um, as you know, at Tuttle Park, there's all kinds of uh, uh, song uh, flowers or sorry um, leaves all over, and uh, and that. So we may have on. Uh, the anniversary of his death have some kind of a uh, uh, gathering at the Tato Park where his uh, his song uh, leaves are. Uh, I remember when we spoke last, Ralph, you talked about uh, knowing him as a kid. What was that like? Share a memory with us. <laughs> well, it goes back a long time. Uh, I was eight years old and around seven or eight years old, and uh, he lived at 283, uh, 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 just down the street from us. Uh, Harvey, Harvey Street at 283, mm-hmm. and I lived on Otosaga. And between us, there's a park. So we would play there as little kids, and but there was older kids that would bully us. So Cord would come around when, when he was there and, and, then, and say, hey, guys, leave them alone. Get out of here, or you'll have me to answer to, sort of thing. So uh, mm-hmm. that was my first uh, interaction with uh, Mr. Lightfoot, or Cord. But he's in a, he's in a place now where you know, St. Peter is probably on the big stage there and uh, playing his uh, sinking of Edmund Fitzgerald, and there's 29 sailors that are looking to meet him up there. So uh, uh-huh. I think that's quite a tribute to him. Did you chat with him much later in life after those memories? Yes, we did. Uh, we were at the Mariposa. Did you ever tell Maripos- him? Did you ever tell him that story, Ralph? Did he remember that story? <laughs> Uh, I mentioned it to him that uh, once, uh, not to the extent this was because he was a busy guy around, but I did chat yeah. with him quite a bit. I did mention it to him, and uh, he laughed. <laughs> he says, I am, I hope I did the right thing. <laughs> I'll never forget <laughs> oh, that. But the other thing, around around the Mariposa Folk Festival, uh, um, 
he he would not just be a, a music icon and just stick to himself. That he would walk around, shake people's hand, let them take photographs, sign auto, or sorry, let them take pictures, sign autographs. And I took my grandson when he was about a year old at the at the festival, and he came up and tickled them to make them smile. And, and got, I have a picture of them together. And and uh, you know, he was more wow. than just an icon. As you know, a lot of the uh, musicians or icons that uh, celebrities that we know will not sign autographs uh, publicly or whatever unless somebody pays for them. But Gord, no, he was such a such a gentleman to people, and I think that's why he got so many people coming up from all over the, all over Canada. To be honest with you, what's it like in town today? Uh, well, the sun's shining. To be uh, <laughs> the, the sun's shining, and you know, people on that uh, walk. The, uh, I have a retail store, so they walk in and thank me for being there, and uh, uh, they said it was such a great effort to put forward by the city and by St. Paul's United Church here to honor him uh, on uh, rather than just go into a funeral home and pay our respects there. So is the town pretty much back to normal today? Uh, I wouldn't say normal, but there's still a lot of people that are... Uh, uh, the Opera House has a bust of him outside. It was a, a mm. small lineup this morning there, people going up, mm. uh, uh, dropping off a rose or a flower, and then... Uh, and then also uh, uh, over the weekend, uh, there's a, a book, condolence signing book there, and there was hundreds of people lined up to uh, to sign that book. Hmm. Ralph Sapola with his counselor, Ward 2, City of Aurelia. Over the weekend, thousands of fans flocked to Aurelia to pay respects to Gordon Lightfoot at his visitation. Ralph, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Good luck moving forward. No problem, uh, Scott. I totally appreciate your call. And... Uh, Stay safe, and thank you for reaching out, and thank you for honoring Mr. Lightfoot. You too. Be well. You hear a lot about it. Uh, obviously, the precious minerals that Canada has lots of that is needed, whether it uh, are needed, rather, whether it's uh, computer chips or uh, the uh, precious minerals needed for EV production, batteries, and such. And now we're hearing Ottawa is clamping down on China's critical minerals foray into Canada. I believe they have a mine up in the Manitoba area. It's funny, we hear so much about how difficult it is to get one built. Uh, what about purchasing or laying claim to them? Let's bring in Niall McGee, mining reporter with the Globe and Mail. The article uh, is uh, China Canadian uh, is in the Globe and Mail, rather. And the headline is Ottawa clamps down on China's critical mineral foray, but not prospecting. And Niall is with us now. Niall, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Great to be here, Scott. It's funny we hear that it's so hard to for companies or investors to get into the mineral industry in Canada. It takes a long time to get a mine open, yet it didn't seem to take long for China to gain a a a, a lock on this, or at least a good foothold. What are your thoughts? Yeah, that's right. I mean, building a mine takes a lot of time, but at the very uh, early stages uh, of prospecting, it's super easy basically for anyone uh, to become a prospector in Canada. I drew the analogy in the article to buying a can of tennis balls on Amazon. Um, It is literally almost as straightforward. Uh, You can do it from your computer. You can identify uh, attractive land, and um, you can basically buy it using your credit card. And there's very little uh, restrictions, and there's no restrictions really on who can buy. So 
uh, all Canadians uh, can buy, Americans can buy Canadian mining claims, but also um, Chinese uh, state-owned companies and corporations can buy uh, claims. And, uh, of course, that's been very sensitive recently in uh, the sector because Ottawa has, uh, as you alluded to in the intro, uh, clamped down on on Chinese investment uh, at the later stages of mining. So that's a Chinese company buying a mining company. But at the very early stages, uh, they have complete uh, free reign and there's really no restrictions at all. And quite a few people see that as a, a national security issue. So uh, what has changed now? What are they clamping down on now? Yeah, so so late last year, um, and really only after um, they received uh, a lot of bad press, and I probably was, was responsible for a lot of that bad press, um, really years and years, uh, close to a decade of allowing um, Chinese state-owned companies to buy uh, critical minerals assets by Canadian mining companies, in Canada and uh, set up even the only lithium mine in Canada. Um, yes. Late last year, the Canadian government uh, did take a lot of action and decided that no longer uh, would they allow uh, Chinese state-owned companies to buy uh, Canadian critical minerals companies. And um, they made even stipulations that it didn't matter where the mine is. And that uh, surprised a lot of people because previously uh, the indications had been uh, it didn't matter if the mine was abroad, but the um, federal industry minister was very clear that even if it was a situation uh, for a Canadian company holding a mine in South America, that that would be a problem. And so uh, they said no longer would those deals be allowed, only under exceptional circumstances. And they actually forced uh, Ottawa did uh, three small Canadian lithium companies to divest themselves off their Chinese uh, uh, investors. So really, really uh, drastic move uh, towards the end of last year. What is the story about the lithium mine in Manitoba? That is it true that that is owned by China and everything that comes out of it goes right there? None of it goes to us or anywhere else? Yeah, that's right. Uh, this is something I reported on uh, last year in the summer that drew uh, quite a lot of negative attention to uh, the federal government. So uh, there's a privately held Chinese company called uh, Sinamine that owns the Tanko mine in Manitoba. Uh, that used to be um, a mine that was run at, at one point by a Canadian company. It changed hands and then was uh, acquired by an American company. And then in 2019, that American company had an offer from a Chinese state-owned firm to buy it. And because the mine is in Canada, uh, Canada had the right to say no on national security grounds, uh, but Canada uh, approved the deal, and all the evidence seems to point to that they gave it very little thought at all. Um, mm. And the Chinese subsequently went in, uh, put in a lot of money into the operation because it had been kind of um, exhausted almost in terms of its uh, mining, but they last year started mining again, and they started mining lithium, and that was seen as a huge problem because there currently aren't any other, uh, or at least last year, there weren't any other lithium mines in Canada. Uh, and the only one that was in operation was run by the Chinese. And as you pointed out, the, the lithium was back into the Chinese system, uh, back to their country for electric vehicles. And meanwhile, there's, there's nobody in Canada uh, that was doing the same for North America. 
Um, so yeah, was seen as a as a huge miss uh, by Ottawa that they allowed this to happen. Niall McNeil with us, mining reporter for the Globe and Mail. His latest Ottawa clamping down, clamps down on China's critical minerals foray, but not the prospecting. Uh, Niall, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks so much, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Did you get up early over the weekend and uh, see the big show? Uh, I bet Alyssa Freeman did, PR and pop culture expert and a bit of a royal fan and is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, I am. If still a little bit tired, Scott. Did you really get up? I got up early. (laughs) (laughs) So what time did this all start for you? Well, you know, it started a lot earlier than I got up. I think it started at about 5 a.m. our time. But, you know, I tend Mm. to be a bit of an early riser. So we started watching it at about 6 a.m., I guess, 6.20. Hey man, and we then, all do that for an F. We all do that for an F one race anyway. So why not the king? Well, I do do that for an F one <laughs> race, and we've never discussed F one. So if you want to switch topics now, I'm only wow. Miami GP. But- I I, can, I cannot believe you. Whether it's the oh. monarchy, whether it's F one, you you know everything. We will come back well, around to this. I, I am an Aston Martin fan, uh, so it, it um, plays in the same realm. You know, both UK based. But anyways, back to King Charles. So your thoughts on this, what was sort of a scaled down version of? I know rain, some say, uh, kept the crowds a little smaller. What are your thoughts on the whole presentation? Was it scaled down? I don't know. I mean, from what I saw, it was kind of bringing up history that most of us have never seen that Mm. began centuries ago when, uh, you know, crowning a king and, well, in this case, a queen consort. So there was a lot of ritual. There was a lot of pomp and circumstance. There was a lot of jewels. Um, It was actually quite fascinating to watch. I won't say it was the most exciting thing, but I Hmm. will say that it was absolutely fascinating from a historical perspective to to sit there and watch it. And and again, I think what a lot of us forget that, and and we, you know, the 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 debate about the monarchy, whether we should do this or do that, you, you forget the history involved here and what you're actually witnessing. Well, you know, there is that. I mean, of course, on social media, there are a lot of people who were absolutely for the coronation, you know, whether they're indifferent to it or not. Then, of course, there's the people, there are the people, the, the faction of people who are vehemently against it. And there was a trending hashtag, which was not my king. Although when they did crown Camilla, I was all behind the hashtag not my queen. Hmm. But, uh, you know, you also forget about the um, far reaching ramifications once King Charles is actually king, because, you know, that day we also found out that he's going to be now represented on our money. Yeah. So and that's when it really hits home thinking, oh, you know, we still are <laughs> under the monarchy here, monarchy here, whether we like it or not. Um, My wife and I were talking about it would have been nice for Chuck to have gotten a haircut. At least trim up the neck a little bit, maybe uh, weave down those brows. Your thoughts? Like, what is that? Honestly, I don't get a haircut, dude. Everybody's taking pictures here. Well, you know, and he looked really beleaguered. But as I said to somebody this morning, heavy is the head that wears the crown. And that Hmm. crown was heavy. So, you know, you take the crown, you take the two scepters, you take the cloak that he was in, and he did need somebody to help him stand up. And sit down because apparently it's it's absolutely weighs uh, weighs a ton. But the other thing that people were talking about was were the um, 
were the uh, jewels. So all mm. the crown jewels. And it was funny. We all had the same comment. Like, they were stunning. They're worth billions. And at one point in history, they were all stolen. So, yes. you know, the, the yes. shadow of the monarchy does continue <laughs> to follow them. No you, hear the same sort, you hear the same sort of thing when you tour the Vatican and how nice it is. It's hilarious, the history that is involved. We sometimes forget that. And well, perhaps it is the biggest bank in the world, Tom. That's right. And, well, and perhaps. I mean, Scott. You know, I see yeah. Tom's name on my No, no. Uh, it is and, the and, biggest bank in the world, yeah. Yeah, and, and hilarious probably isn't uh, the right word. Uh, any thoughts on where the prime minister might have stayed? We remember during the funeral, he stayed at the $6,000 a night room. Do you think he's going to do that again or did that again? Well, I hope not, because, you know, you never want lightning to strike twice. So I hope that he went into some sort of uh, very discreet Airbnb or stayed with a, <laughs> maybe a good friend. Because honestly, you know, with everything that's going on, especially with, you know, all the uh, interference from China, do you really need this to layer on uh, all, all, all the issues that you're dealing with now? So, you know, it was like the trip to India, which we still talk about, right, Scott? Mm -hmm. I mean, we still mm -hmm. talk about the trip to India and the eight different costume changes. Did he ever do that again? No. <laughs> so I'd like to think that the PM and the PMO has learned their lesson and, and, for, and you know, did not stay at the $6,000 a night suite in the hotel and instead stayed in something a little bit more modest or maybe even a better idea, not even to spend the taxpayers' money on this at all. And to go ahead and and stay uh, stay with a friend or somewhere private. What about uh, Harry? He was pretty much in and out. Oh, and, that and, was amazing. So first and of there, all, and there was chatter that, that they put Princess Anne in front of him, and she had like this big sort of feather coming out of her ceremonial cap. So number one, he was relegated to the third row. Number two, he was sitting beside sitting behind, I guess, his uh, you know Princess Anne, and uh, couldn't see. And number three, he got the heck out of Dodge. Mm. It was it was really uh, a statement without saying absolutely anything. I'm here. You asked me to show up. I showed up for my dad. Uh, you relegated me to the third row. Probably nobody really talked to him or maybe he just made it so that he came and did his duty. And then he went. And I think, I mean, honestly, I think that it'll be a long time until we see Harry once, you know, go into mm. England and, uh, you know, for some sort of uh, anything to related with the royal family. Because if that's the way he uh, portrayed himself and wanted to portray himself during that coronation, it certainly spoke volumes. Mm. And there was a conspiracy theory that uh, Meghan was there in disguise somewhere. I went, well, I find that hysterical, but I highly <laughs> doubt it. But I mean, if Megan says that it was way too early in California for her to watch, I don't believe it for a minute. I think that she went to bed at 5 p.m. the next day, made sure she got up and watched everything. Because, you know, Scott, if it can happen to Camilla, dot, dot, dot. Oh, look at you out. go. So wow. She's cooking up a plan that one day. Many decades hence, you know, she's thinking of herself with that crown on her head because, you, you know, did Camilla are, ever think that 50 years ago? You Maybe. are good. I would have never thought of that. All right. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert. As always, Alyssa, thanks for the time. Be well. And next time, F1. There you, that's right. Yes, I'm in. We remember during the uh, the global pandemic and such, the weak links were exposed in our Canadian healthcare system. Many talked about it. Once we get out of this mess, 
We were going to try to fix things as best we could. I'm not sure if we're there yet. Ontario has passed a health reform bill that will allow more private clinics to offer certain publicly funded surgeries and procedures in an effort to cut long wait lists for care. The move is part of the government's plan to decrease wait times and reduce massive backlogs of surgeries, which stands at more than 200,000 procedures. To talk more about all of this, Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News and with us now. Colin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon, Scott. Thanks for having me. So, Colin, any surprises here, or is this just finalizing what we already knew? Give us an update here. Yeah, it's finalizing what we already knew. I mean, this legislation was presented by uh, the Ford government, you know, back in February, and we kind of knew uh, right from the get-go that this was going to be controversial because the government is opening the door to allowing more for-profit private healthcare facilities to operate kind of independent almost of the hospital system. But, you know, the government says patients will still be paying with their OHIP card. uh, And so they won't be anything out of pocket. So, I mean, this is a fairly controversial piece of legislation because people are saying, well, listen, this could open the door to more private involvement in the the healthcare uh, system. And as we saw, to your point about the pandemic, it exposed a lot of things, right? Long-term care is one of these primary examples that people, you know, always point to saying the homes that were operated by private facilities that were often listed on stock exchanges and had, you know, maybe a profit motive to them, often the the results were worse than those long-term care homes that were operated by municipalities, as an example. And people often say, well, that that is the aha. That is what, you know, shows you the delineation between a private facility and a publicly owned facility, because once you start mixing in you know, potential shareholders, then the question is, you know, how how does one show a profit to those shareholders so that they have good return on their investment? That's what a lot of people are afraid of will happen as a result of this legislation. And today that legislation actually passed. Uh, and just to clarify, Colin, so this is, as you said, paying with your OHIP card. So these are OHIP, to, OHIP surgeries that are now provided by a, a private facility per se. Is that accurate? That's- That's correct. I mean, some of these already exist, right? I mean, if you're going to go get a cataract surgery, as an example, a lot of them are done in private clinics. If you go to get an MRI or CT scan, some of them might be in a private clinic. Um, what, What some critics are arguing is that these private clinics, predominantly cataract clinics, will often upsell patients. So you come in there, your services are covered by OHIP, but you know, there are varying degrees in terms of lenses and lens number, you know, one is covered by OHIP, but this shinier, better lens that'll let you see further and, you know, will give you better vision for longer. Well, that one's not covered by OHIP. And that's the one that the doctor might recommend in that moment. And if you're a patient, some, you know, some healthcare advocates will argue that there's a power imbalance between a patient and a doctor. And if a doctor recommends something in that moment, you might just say, yeah, sure. If you think it's best, Doc, I'll, I'll take your advice. And so they're saying that that upselling already exists in the system. And there's worry that this law, because you're now expanding the use of these clinics, therefore you expand the number of instances that people could be upsold. That is one of the that is one of the you know the criticisms and the and the concerns about this legislation. 
Uh, it makes total sense. Uh, going through the same thing with hearing aids right now, Colin, but I'll still, I'll still try to hover on your every word. Um, lots of chatter in regard to this and, and, you know, the fears of what could happen if this, uh, snowballs and, and gets out of control and such. But at the end of the day, is there much resistance to this? We are seeing things start to speed up. It appears that this seems to be working. Any fallout from that? Well, we have to see kind of how this really plays out, right? Because first, the government is starting with expanding the number of cataracts and diagnostic imaging that's being done in these private facilities. Next, they're going to move to knee and hip replacements. And that's really the big new thing here, because knee and hip replacements are really done in a hospital. The government claims that if they start to move more of these out into independent facilities, they can uh, cut down on the backlog and also leave the hospital ORs free for more major surgeries, like, uh, you know, uh, a quadruple bypass, as an example. What some on the other side are saying is is the danger here is by moving these knee and hip replacement surgeries into private facilities, A, you lose the oversight, and B, you'll potentially lose the healthcare staff because there's only a set number of healthcare staff. And in order to facilitate these private surgical clinics, you know, there's a worry about a brain drain from the hospital's into these private clinics. So that we really have to see the rubber hit the road in order to see how that's going to play out and how that's, you know, that's going to work in the long run. Some of these claims or these concerns may ultimately never come to fruition because the government might be able to put some regulations in place to really, you know, box in these private health facilities. But then again, you know, we're talking about government. It's big. And sometimes a lot of things fall through the cracks because there might not be a lot of direct oversight. So we have to see this play out in the days and weeks uh, and months ahead uh, before we start to really get those patient complaints coming back. Here we are, Colin, uh, the spring already heading in. uh, What do you see the big issues in the next little while before they're out for summer at Queen's Park? Yeah, well, we've only got a couple of more uh, weeks, a few more weeks before the Ontario legislature breaks. I, I mean, you know, I think one of the big things that this government has always been fixated on is is increasing the, the housing supply, making sure that they're building as many homes as possible. Um, they've set a target of 1.5 million homes over the next 10 years. Their housing starts aren't really meeting their current expectations. So the big question is, what else is this government going to do in the next few weeks and months in order to convince developers uh, that they're making it as cheap as possible for those people to actually start getting shovels in the ground? The other thing is some some regional governments are in question as well, particularly Peel region, York region, Durham region, a bunch of other uh, regional governments. The government, the uh, provincial government is looking at eliminating a layer of government potentially and downloading some of those responsibilities onto the lower governments and and also speeding up the development um, so that it doesn't have to go through multiple layers of government. So we'll see what happens with that. We're hearing that that could come in the next few weeks. And then the other big question is Ontario Place, right? That is really captivated a lot of people's hearts and attention. And and the government is under a lot of criticism and pushback to kind of, you know, scale back its plans with Ontario Place. So we're we're keeping an eye on that to see what the government does does next and to see how much more controversy will be drummed up from its plans over Ontario Place. That and potentially more out of Queen's Park. Colin DeMella with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. Colin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you for having me. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. uh, This afternoon, after um, a week now, it was a week ago that uh, the Globe and Mail broke the story of uh, the Chinese Communist Party allegedly uh, targeting uh, MP Michael Chong and his family uh, in the next election, in the last election, rather. The Prime Minister saying the information didn't get up from CSIS. Uh, CSIS and the National Security Advisor saying, nope, they got the information. Uh, And just a different storyline there, depending on who you ask. And now, lo and behold, we found out, we find out that that Chinese diplomat is being expelled, if not already. Um, And and here we are. Does this confirm what everybody has been saying? And therefore, how do you expel uh, a Chinese diplomat and not hold a public inquiry? Let's bring in Nelson Wiseman, Professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, and with us now. Nelson, thank you for your time. Hope you're well. I'm well, Scott. Thank you. So your thoughts, Nelson, on this diplomat being expelled a week later? Uh, Well, my first thought was, what's taken so long? The government says it was calculating what the implications might be. I'm not sure. Nobody knows exactly what they'll be. I mean, the Chinese might um, hold up Canadian exports to China. They've done that in the past with uh, canola, most notably. But also, I believe, with some... uh, meat exports. Uh, They could grab a couple of Canadians, as they did with the two Michaels, but I don't think that would happen here, because they seem to approach uh, as a tit-for-tat exercise, and in that case, Canada was holding a very senior person in Huawei, in fact, the daughter of the founder of the company. Mm -hmm. Most likely, what will happen is uh, China will expel a Canadian diplomat, maybe two. Um, I guess Canada could issue a, a travel advisory. Um, it is important, however, that Canada maintain trade relations uh, with China because they, we're just so dependent. So much of what we buy comes from China. And now uh, a lot of what we sell also goes to China. Once you get past the United States, China is one of our largest trading partners. Is now once you've gotten, I remember the government saying all this week, like you just can't kick out a diplomat. You got to look for, as you said, what the ramifications could be, although there always seems to be ramifications in in this situation. Uh, But now that they've come to this conclusion to finally reach the decision to kick him out, uh, does this mean there has to be a public inquiry? Is this not admitting there's interference? No, no, I don't think you need a public inquiry uh, at all. Maybe I think uh, if we could use a public inquiry into the broader issue of Chinese interference in our elections, that's the real story that came out, uh, I don't know, maybe a month ago, maybe more. Uh, This just adds spice uh, that the Chinese have been mixing in here and uh, you know, there was also the story broken by uh, out of a, by a Spanish group about the so-called uh, uh, prison prison stations. Although I, I'm not police sure stations, that's yeah. an accurate term. Um, so you know, it's clear. Look, this isn't the China that Canada dealt with 30, 40 years ago when Deng Xiaoping was in power, or even some of his successors under uh, Chairman Xi. 
President Xi. This is very much a very different kind of uh, regime, which is taking very aggressive. The, the word's been used, I think, wolf warrior, to uh, to attack, attack on all fronts. And let me say something else. This isn't the um, first time uh, that we've had the Chinese trying to um, influence what happens in Parliament, and not through diplomatic uh, sources. For example, back in 2011, uh, there was a relationship that started to develop between the conservative member of parliament for Mississauga Arendelle, Bob Deckert, and a very, very attractive uh, alleged correspondent for Xinhua News Agency, the Communist Party's, Chinese Communist Party's news agency. Um, and it was clear that she wasn't a, a genuine um, a reporter or journalist. I met with her, and it struck me right away. Hmm. Uh, oh, yeah, she's very attractive, but how come... Um, we, we've heard... We've heard... Long? We've heard stories like this. How does this situation now with the expulsion of this diplomat, how does this change things moving forward? Well, if we do get an inquiry and we're waiting for uh, David Johnston, the former governor general, to to report on that later this month, uh, it'll be broader than simply looking at um, foreign intervention in Canadian elections. Now, there's no doubt that because of social media, uh, there are always going to things appearing on there from um, outside of the country. So that's a form of interference. But when you have state actors, that raises it to a different level. And, uh, you know, it's our obligation to try to uh, not only monitor that, but block that. Um, the other part of this whole story is, is why is it coming out? It's coming out because somebody in CSIS, either a former member or even a current one, has been so repulsed by the government not acting on their reports that they leaked it. Mm. Let me ask you. Let me ask you that. Uh, what your thoughts are, Nelson? Because the PM said, uh, even right up till very recently, he didn't know anything th- about this stuff from Chong. Well, he instructed CSIS for this to come up the ladder, and yet we have the National Security Advisor saying that, yeah, it did get through. So it who's? Did, it did get through. It did get through. There's no doubt yeah. about it. CSIS yeah. doesn't produce reports, as the Prime Minister suggested for them to just sit around in a tea group and look at their own reports. You're writing <laughs> yeah. a report for somebody. Yeah. yeah. Hold. So, look, I'm sure the prime minister didn't see the report. I'm sure, as the national security advisor uh, said, it did go up, although she wasn't the national security advisor at the time. And and I suspect it went, it, it even got to uh, some of Trudeau's uh, own staff. I'm not positive about that, but I suspect that happened. It's a situation where it's like, hear no evil, speak no evil, see no evil, because I don't think they wanted to tangle with China, and especially um, while the two Michaels were being held, where I, I think they, you know, they bent over backwards, and there's still questions about that, like, how come when uh, two Michaels were released and uh, the media asked uh, Kovrig, I remember, 
uh, Michael Kovrig, uh, well, can we interview you? Well, now is not the time, he said. Have you seen any interviews since? Yeah, Obviously no. not. And the reason yeah. is because that was part of the deal, too. Whereas yeah. the Chinese greeted their uh, Huawei executive with this incredible yeah. reception that got uh, hmm. uh, televised here. Nelson Wiseman with us, professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, talking about the expulsion of a Chinese diplomat uh, allegedly threatening uh, MP Michael Chong. Nelson, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. It was a week ago that uh, the Globe and Mail broke yet another story on Chinese interference in Canada and exposed that uh, allegedly uh, Michael Chong, uh, an MP, his family targeted, harassed by the Chinese Communist Party through a diplomat here. Um, everybody was uh, upset about this on both sides of the house. Uh, the Prime Minister saying that he didn't learn of this information until everybody else did, that being with the Globe and Mail article, uh, his national security advisor uh, contradicting that story, saying that the information does go up the rank and file the chain of command from CSIS to uh, the Prime Minister's office, and lo and behold, uh, despite all of that, this uh, diplomat has now been expelled from Canada. Let's bring in Gordon Holden, Director Emeritus, China Institute, and Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta, and with us now. Gordon, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well. Thank you, Scott. So, Gordon, despite all of uh, the denial and, and people saying when they knew and when they didn't know, obviously this must be credible now because the diplomat has been expelled. Well, I think, I mean, this has really not been the ideal way that these things would roll out. Of course, ideally, there wouldn't be this interference from the get-go. But on our side, I don't think we look particularly well. Why is this happening now, Gordon? Well, quite frankly, it shouldn't be happening now. I'd argue it shouldn't have to happen from the leak of a of a highly classified document, probably almost certainly uh, top secret, maybe even classified higher than that. Uh, it shouldn't happen that fashion. The, the way these things should work would be for the agencies and the machinery of government to have analyzed this, dealt with it, and taken whatever action was necessary uh, some time ago. And I think that the we're, we're dealing not just with a few weeks, but months and months and months. So it's... Um, uh, it's perhaps not a something has been done, which I think was necessary, but it hasn't rolled out in the way that you really want these things to do. The prime minister uh, spoke differently than what the national security advisor said. Immediately, the prime minister said that was the first that he knew about this when the Globe and, Mo uh, Globe and Mail broke the story a week ago, uh, and that you know he's instructed the CSIS to change the procedure and make sure this stuff goes up the chain of command. CSIS, the national security advisor, saying no, they, they got all this information, um, and now all of a sudden the person is expelled. What does it say about the Prime Minister contradicting what CSIS or even the National Security Advisor is suggesting? It's got to be very embarrassing from the get-go. But to me, it also points to more fundamental problems. I mean, you've got several thousand people working either for CSE, the Security uh, Communication Establishment, or for CSIS. Um, RCMP have a role as well. And there'd be a mountain of information that's generated. But where the failure seems to be is to... Uh, deciding what's really important and getting the right information to the highest levels, including the prime minister's office and the prime minister 
uh, himself. You can't have him read everything, but he needs to be able to see what he really needs to be able to see. And that system seems to be operating imperfectly or is broken down. Let me ask you about that, Gordon, because the, the prime minister constantly throws others under the bus and the system, the system isn't doing this. But if this isn't important, if this doesn't make its way through the system, what the heck does? Well, the other point, I, th- I agree with you, Scott, and the system for winnowing out what is really important, threats to one of the most senior people in the in the opposition. The I guess my party. point here, Gordon, and sorry for yeah. interrupting, is this not no. just an excuse? Is this not just an excuse? I mean, come on, well, we're talking about the prime minister, the government. Exactly, Scott. And, and quite frankly, um, even if the failures were just below him or further down below, the prime minister bears responsibility as head of the executive wing of government. So you can't just point at others and say, oh, you didn't do this, you didn't do that. It's your job to make sure things work well. And if they're not working, at least some, if not most of the blame, lies with you. If it's something of great importance, as this case certainly is. So I would agree. It's a mess. And I hate to see Canada look badly, but we do. So what now, Gordon? This this diplomat has been expelled. What now? I mean, well, doesn't that since you've expelled the diplomat, yeah. doesn't that mean there should be an inquiry? Well, I think inquiry is a must, um, not because of this case, but because of the whole pattern. I mean, you know, there's many, many instances that fit into that pattern of uh, interference. You don't, you can't have a, an inquiry for each individual piece, but when you've got a whole raft of a whole pattern of of interference. I think it does call for an inquiry uh, sooner rather than later. But what we're waiting for now, and keep in mind that people are asleep in China right now, uh, what I think we're going to see sooner rather than later, maybe not tomorrow, but very soon, I think argue this week, would be retaliation of the Chinese side. I don't think they'll take this lying down. Irrespective of the fact that they were caught with their hands in the cookie jar, uh, they won't accept blame and they will retaliate. Uh, many many said, and the government said this week, you just can't boot a, a diplomat out. Uh, and again, many answering that with, what do you have to do to get kicked out? That being said, um, and everybody worried about retaliation, um, China is in a constant t- state of retaliation. Are they not always holding somebody against their will? Are they not always uh, in these scenarios that we find ourselves? Are they not always threatening Canada? What's different now? I mean, so what if they boot out a diplomat? Uh, are our diplomats there harassing Canadians or Chinese? he's there it's it's apples and oranges you're, you're quite right um and whoever will be given the boot if that happens on our side uh it'll be something something wrenched out of their normal life their family uh, life turned upside down etc uh, but i think we have to do what we have to do and um it the retaliation is one thing but failure to do what we ought to do has consequences as well i'm just pointing out that Fairly or unfairly, in this case, unfairly, they will retaliate. And I don't think you can expect otherwise. That's the way they roll. Gordon Holden, Director Emeritus, China Institute, Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta. Always fascinating, Gordon. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Take care. Tim Powers, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, joining us here on Hamilton Today. Tim, how are you today? Well, I'm not as anxious as Connor Bedard is to find out where he's going. <laughs> I, I'm happy you're, you're putting me in the pantheon of people who are lifting the radio. So oh, you know what? That is a beautiful distraction. Let's think about that as opposed to the leaves.
Uh, I digress. Uh, well, listen, if you're foolish enough to still think that that team's got a chance, I, Scott, I've got some help for you. You sound like my son and my wife, but I digress. All right. Uh, I have to ask you about this right off the top. Breaking news. We were talking about the be- beginning of the show, why the prime minister has not ejected the uh, diplomat from China, allegedly uh, uh, charged with harassing, uh, not charged, but uh, accused of harassing Michael Chang, uh, Chong and his family, the MP and such. And uh, the prime minister saying that he's just found out about this when the Globe and Mail broke the article. Meanwhile, uh, the national, his national security advisor says, no, all of this stuff makes it up through the chain uh, from CSIS. And now... He's gone. The diplomat is expelled. Are you surprised? Why now? Well, it should have happened a long time ago, I think. I, I think he's he's expelled now because the liberals want to kill the story, Scott, um, hmm. or try to kill the story. I mean, you and I talked about this on Friday, Thursday or Friday. Certainly over the weekend, it was haunting the government. Even at the coronation, after the coronation, as you know, the prime minister got a question about it in London. And I think if you sit back, as your audience does, and look, listens to the facts that are presented, there's nobody disputing the fact that this diplomat allegedly was doing something to undermine Michael Chan and others. So if that's not in dispute, why is he still in Canada? And I think the government couldn't make a reason to say, oh, you know, we should we we need to keep him here because the reaction from China will be too detrimental. That just doesn't cut the mustard. When is it not detrimental? Everything they were constantly being threatened or harassed in some way. Um, that being said, uh, the contradiction of the prime minister, what the prime minister said, and his national security advisor, he immediately directed CSIS to bring this stuff up through the system quickly. Uh, the national security advisor said, "We do do that." As CSIS is leaking this information, um, so uh, it seems a, a different opinion by both of those people as to what happened. Is this going to change the channel by uh, dismissing the diplomat? No, because I don't think the security services, whoever in the security services, whatever group of people are putting different pieces of information are about to stop, right? Yeah. Uh, and and I think they are so frustrated with their the relationship that exists with the government. And uh, as the pattern of stories have suggested, uh, they, they don't believe that the government is paying enough attention to what China and others are doing. I don't think this is going to stop that at all, And I, I, as much as the prime minister would like it to end. Where does this go from here? What now? Well, what day are we? Monday, I suspect. Scott, yep. Probably the Globe will have some other story, Tuesday or Wednesday. That seems to be the pattern, right? When one thing sort of takes, when one thing goes quiet, another one pops up. Uh, I think where the story goes now, I guess the Prime Minister was asked in French. I didn't hear it, but uh, while well, he was in uh, London, uh, if there were others uh, who were subject to things, other MPs that were subject to uh, interference, like Mr. Chong apparently was. And Mr. Chong also alluded to the fact that the security advisor said to him that there were. So, I mean, you and every other uh, media person rightly is going to ask, okay, who, where, where, when, and why, right? So that's, that's the next tranche of this particular story. So with the expulsion of this diplomat, does that obviously mean this is credible? Clearly, whether they're allegations or not, or what people knew or didn't know, the government feels it's a good idea to kick this diplomat out. So does that mean a public inquiry is just a given if you're kicking out diplomats? There must be an issue. I don't, yeah, I don't see how uh, 
the former governor general, Mr. Johnson, is going to have much room to say that more is not necessary, right? And that more would seem to be a public inquiry. Um, you know, I guess the, the government eventually gets to where it should go, but the damage they do to themselves and arguably to more importantly to the national security system, the reputation of the country in the process of doing that. So I, I, I can't see how there won't be a public inquiry at this point and uh, and what its terms will be, what it's, the mandate will be. Um, uh, who knows? I mean, there is, again, I don't want to start rumors, but Scott, it's your show, so let's start one. I, I mean, there does seem to be a little bit more activity around a potential election in the hmm. fall here. So, you know, <laughs> if they agree to a public inquiry, I suspect they'll take a few months to figure out the terms of reference of what it will be, and then it'll be you know, the fall or later before it starts. And it may be like some of the other inquiries the government has had, they take years to get to a conclusion. So the political management of that will be interesting. Uh, Nano's releasing a poll today. 64% of Canadians want Canada to reach its 2% target of uh, GDP uh, spent on NATO. Uh, the prime minister said that wasn't the case. Opinions changing here. It is, but I think, I, again, I didn't. Nick's an excellent pollster. We used to work together. I, I don't didn't see his roster of questions. Uh, I wonder was it posed there with other comparatives, right? Which is the government's argument. All right, you want me to do this, but that means I can't do healthcare, or, or I can't do climate change. So I think if it were a straight up question, you would get that answer, and that doesn't surprise me at all because I think Canadians, more than the Liberals realize, do take pride in their military and our history and recognize the importance of being a good global partner, particularly in the era in which we now live. Uh, all right, big convention, a liberal convention in Ottawa this weekend. Again, there's the rumors floating around that there could be something on the horizon as far as an election and such. Um, there was an interesting article, uh, I believe it was in the Toronto Star and, and republished in the spec here. Liberals are painting Pierre Polyev as the next Donald Trump. That's a risky strategy. Your thoughts on that? Are, are more people coming around to this guy? Well, I don't know if they're coming around to this guy, but if they put him in the wrong frame, uh, they're going, as the, the conservatives did, I think that was also in the article, and I thought it was a salient point. Yeah. The conservatives fundamentally underestimated Justin Trudeau, and they set the bar so low um, that he was able to uh, exceed the expectations they had created. The liberals do that. This is almost reminds me, Scott, of like 2004, 2005, what the Martin liberals tried to do to Stephen Harper make him this figure that people would fear. And in that day and age, as you remember, the comparison was to George W. Bush, who would be a grand sight better than Donald Trump. But yeah. point being, he was, the, he was the, the Republican demonic figure of the time. So it's a common liberal practice. I think if that's all they've got, they are going to find that that will be lacking, given uh, whether you like it or not, whether you like Polyev or not, he has connected with a lot of people on economic issues and particularly personal affordability. Uh, any word on where the prime minister stayed when he was at the King's coronation? Did he book the $6,000 a night hotel room that he had for five days for the funeral? We want to know, where was he? I, I, I don't know. If he was smart, he would have got a picture of himself crashed out on one of those uh, lovely lounge chairs in the Narito wait, uh, in the Heathrow waiting area. Yeah. I have no idea. I'm sure that will come. To the one that I'm interested in that nobody's asked about is how much did the liberals pay 
to get Hillary Clinton to office. I was thinking that as well, because that would be a big price tag. She wouldn't be coming there just for fun. What, any idea what she would get for that? I, you could go on a website and figure out what her standard fee is. I'm guessing in the range of a quarter of a million bucks. I'm sure she gave them uh, a deal. And again, I did just be transparent about that, right? Like she's a professional paid speaker, uh, and that comes with a jet and security and costs. And if the Liberal Party wants to do that, that's their business. But don't try and you know pretend that that she came out of the goodness of her heart. Maybe she did. Maybe I'm wrong. I'd just be really surprised. Will the basket of deplorables take kindly to this? <laughs> Well, I tell you, having been there, I was doing some work for CFAC at the convention. The person I thought who really hindered their future leadership aspirations was Krishia Friedland, because I, and you you know this as a professional interviewer, um, she was interviewing uh, the former Secretary of State, uh, who has an impressive, you know, whether you like what she did or didn't, she's got a long historical mm-hmm. pedigree. Mm-hmm. And uh, Friedland tried to make it, in my view, too much about Krishia Friedland. And again, you know, uh, as a professional interviewer, yeah, you do that sometimes, but not in a moment like that. You let the person speak and let it be about them because that's what people came to see. And and the head constantly bobbing when something positive. Oh, yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah, my yeah, goodness. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's ever, everybody bobs their head together. It must be right, I guess. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Tim Powers with his chairman, Summa Strategies. Reminds me of those dogs that were in the back window of cars back in you know the old days. Is, what, uh, is that what your wills do? All the wills? They're, they're bobbing their heads. <laughs> they just the bow to me all the time. That's what it <laughs> <Yeah>. is. Tim <laughs> Powers, chairman, Summa Strategies, managing director, Abacus Data. Tim, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Take care, buddy. Joining us, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. And he's coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Nothing quite as regal as a kazoo salute to the new king. (sighs) Apparently that came from your library. Well, it actually came from our friend Tom's library, but uh, you know what? Well, I'll take credit for it. Sure, why not? You better take credit, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know which one he's talking to, so let's blame it on you. Uh, all right, so you're, first of all, uh, let's talk about what happened to the Leafs last night. Uh, what, are they going to come back and, and win one and drag this out for us? What are your thoughts? Uh, you know, Scott, um <laughs> I, I, Are you so, letting me down easy here? Is that what you're doing? I would like to believe, I, I mean, I would, I may be wrong. I may be foolish. I may be naive. I would like to believe that if CHML paid you a salary of 12 or $13 million a year, that, that not every single show is going to win an award, but you would show up and give your bloody best effort every single day because you're being paid an obscene amount of money that at the very least you would put in the effort. I do that for 12 bucks. I know. And so I, you know, uh, we should probably bring back the kazoos to honor that. But, <laughs> um, but you look at some of the Leafs, Marner and Matthews in particular yesterday, and in the biggest game of the season, they weren't even there. Yeah. They, they were not even there. And I mean, half of me as I'm watching this thinks this is disgraceful that you are the two guys who drive this team, who wouldn't sign max term contracts, who held out for every single dollar you could get. And then when your team needs you the most, you absolutely disappear. Half of me was disgusted and half felt badly for them that, you know what, maybe they just are two people who don't have it in them. They're talented, but don't come with the essential playoff ingredient that makes great players. I don't know. 
And we talked about this before. Having a, a, a boatload of talent is one thing. Being a leader in the room and behind the bench is another. It takes more than just talent to win. Well, go back to what, 93, uh, Doug Gilmore had a lot of talent, but was not half the talent that Austin Matthews is. He wasn't, but Doug Gilmore using one example, take Wendell Clark, if you want, even take Matt yep. Sundin, yep. uh, who often got criticized for this. They showed up at the big moments. They weren't yeah. just regular season guys. Doug Gilmore, you know, one of the, they just had a, I saw a tweet a few days ago for the, it was either the 20, I guess it was the 30th anniversary of that double overtime wraparound goal against Curtis Joseph in St. Louis. Mm. Like one of the, the last great playoff moments in, for Leaf fans. Um, you know, those guys, you would, ne- they may have lost, they didn't win a cup, but you would never say the effort was not there. Last night yeah. you looked at the Leafs and you said, what in the world are you doing that here's the frustration, Scott, that I've heard from a lot of people today. You see it online, you hear it all over the place. The fans don't want to believe that they care more about this than the players do. And that was the impression you got in the game yesterday. Fair or not, you got the impression the fans really, really cared and the players just were there for a skate, if that. And that's, that's where I think the fans real frustration comes. You can take losing. They've been losing for 55, 56 <laughs> years. They, they can take losing. They yeah. can't take a lack of interest from the people when they are so invested themselves. They are so emotionally invested in this and the players look like they would have been happy sitting in the dressing room playing a game of crokinole. Uh, video games. Uh, so, um, what, what do you think's next? I mean, uh, coaching change. I mean, we're already yes. writing them off. They could go on and win the Stanley cup, okay. Scott, come on. So you, you, you know, there's a part of me too, that I was thinking about this today. So the, probably they end up getting swept on Wednesday. That's my expectation now, because there's been no reason to think otherwise in this series, but it would be far more leafian to win the next three games. <laughs> I know. And, and then lose. Then, I know. And then repeat last night's game yes. in game seven with a non-show yep. and really drive the stake into the groin of Leaf fans. Not even in the heart of Leaf fans, into the groin of Leaf fans, just to make yep. it worse. It's like, I, I don't expect them to win the series now. I, they're not going to. And your question is what's next? Well, probably you're going to have a coaching change, I would expect. Yeah. Um, almost certainly after yesterday, you, and the fact that the four guys who make the most money on the team have zero goals in the series, zero goals yeah. in this series, mm. you're going to have to find some way to move one or two of those guys out. I don't know how you do it with their contracts. I would keep one, get rid of two. The question, yeah, now here's where. And I don't, and I don't care which one. Well, no, and we're going to talk about this in the second hour when Don Robertson comes in tonight, but here's what is the truly petrifying thing. If you are the Leafs brass. Let's say you do what you said. You keep one and you get rid of one because you want to shake things up. That you must be terrified that the guy you move goes to his new team and absolutely is lighting the world on well, fire. Well, of course they do. Of Everybody course. does. Well, I know, but you just, you don't want to have picked the wrong you guy. You mean again. You so mean again. <laughs> remember the Montreal Canadiens probably 10 years ago, they had, um, uh, Carey Price coming up and they had Yarrow Halak who'd been playing great for them. And there was all kinds of discussion, which goalie do we keep? And they eventually traded Halak, which was the right move. Mm. But that was driving Canadians fans crazy. Cause what if we get rid of the wrong guy? That's exactly what this is. And 
you know, as well as I know, as well as everyone listening knows, they will. Maybe they should get rid of the management instead. That, well, that'll All happen right. too. All right. Uh, that's it for us. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Scott. Have yourself a great show tonight. I'm sure it'll be action-packed. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, for the last word. This one from James. Uh, the Prime Minister has finally expelled a Chinese diplomat accused of targeting the an MP and his family a week after a story broke and brought it to the Prime Minister's attention. Who is driving the bus? Clearly, the Prime Minister isn't. Oh.